means out the window you can imagine. Sunny and warm. I think it's about 75 degrees out. So stop the tape just for a minute. I just said that because I wanted everybody who spent all that money and all that effort to go to Florida for spring break just to be a little jealous of the kind of weather we really have here in central India. Now you can start the tape again. All right, so it was really nice outside, just beautiful, just a spring-like day and the best that central Indiana has to offer. Wink, wink. All right, it's good to see everyone, and uh, I feel like I am becoming the uh, holiday guy here at uh, ZPC, but that's okay, and uh, I just love Jerry and Scott and Don and the ministry here, and I'm happy to be part of today and our worship. As Don said, my wife and I serve with Word of Life International. I am the regional director for the Indo-Pacific Rim, which takes in everything from India over to Japan and then south to New Zealand. My wife and I, however, have a very special interest in Japan and in North Asia, but Japan in particular. And uh, today, as we talk about the kingdom and continuing to build the kingdom, I want to share with you a little bit about how we do that in Asia and in Japan in particular. I'll never forget one time when I was riding along on a train in Japan seated next to a young Japanese man. And I leaned over to him and I said, have you ever heard of Jesus Christ? Now, you may be aware, but less than one half of 1% of Japanese people profess to know Jesus, even nominally. So that, that statistic actually includes cults. And it's not one half percent, it's less than one half of 1% who know or profess Jesus Christ, even nominally. So my question was a good question. Have you ever heard of Jesus Christ? His answer back was, yes, Jesus Christ superstar. It just so happened at that time, Jesus Christ superstar was playing in Japan. And I immediately said, no, no, that's not what I'm talking about. And then I thought in my limited way of communicating with him at that point, I held up my hand and I said, Jesus Christ, Buddha. And his response was to hold up his hands, and he said, Jesus Christ, Buddha, the same level. And I just want you to know that it's one of the things we're up against as we minister to people generally in Asia and specifically to people in Japan. One of the more difficult challenges about sharing the kingdom in Japan is the fact that the words that we use, even though they are words that Japanese Christians use, the average Japanese person will never interpret them in the way that we mean them. And there's something that is, just to wax technical for a moment, something that is called shared referential identity and communication. Let me just explain what that means. I'm holding up here in my hand, a, a bottle, a bottle of water. The word bottle 
is not a bottle. The word itself is just a symbol of the object that I hold in my hand. So the word bottle refers to this object. This object is the referential identity of the word bottle. Are you all with me so far? Okay. Now, if I say the word bottle, and you think of this that I'm holding in my hand, then we have what's called shared referential identity. And that's really great. We're communicating with one another. However, if I say the word bottle, and instead of you thinking of this, you think of this, now we don't have shared referential identity. Now, I can get you from here, this cup that I'm holding in my hand, I can get you from here in our communication to there, but it takes a lot of effort and it takes a lot of words. This kind of thing is the kind of thing that's going on as we're attempting to share who Jesus is, that he's not Jesus Christ superstar, in Asia generally and in Japan specifically. So for example, the Japanese word that Christians use for the God of the Bible is kami-sama, kami-sama. Maybe some of you have heard that expression before. Kami is the name of the Shinto gods or the divine spirit that permeates everything they say in Japan. Some eight million of manifestations of Kami in Japan. It could be a rock. It could be a waterfall. It could be Mount Fuji. Most likely is Mount Fuji where these Kami manifest themselves. Sama simply means the most honorable. So you put the two together, you have the the most honorable kami, kami-sama. And that's the name that Japanese Christians use for the God of the Bible. I can tell you that when the average Japanese person hears the name kami-sama, they might think of anything other than the God of the Bible. They would never think of the God of the Bible. And it's so much like me holding in my hand a bottle on this side and a cup on this side, and I say the word bottle, but you're thinking of this. We're not communicating when that happens. So as I said, it's possible when I'm holding a cup in one hand and a bottle, it's possible to get from one to the other. And it is possible to get from what they're thinking about kami-sama or what they're thinking about the word for Lord, which is shu, or what they're thinking about when it comes to sin, which is the word sumi in Japan. It's possible to get from what they're thinking about to the biblical concepts, but the question is, how do you do that? And how do you do that effectively? And, and that is where we come in with something called the gospel story arc. And we're going to put up on the screen a, a, a screenshot from the website that we are developing that explains all of this, the Gospel Story Arc is messaging that we use to more fully explain who Jesus is and to do it in a way that employs story and the science of story. One of the things that we know from neuroscience research is that the best way to provide context and relevance for anything that you might assert to be true in the world is to cast it in the form of a story that matches up, the story matches up to known story elements that must be there. It's just the way our brains think and the way our brains work. But it's really interesting that it's also the way that God has communicated to us the story of who Jesus is. Now, 
uh, I'm going to share with you this morning, I want to share with you this morning the way that we tell this story in Asia. Uh, but first, I want to call your attention to a couple of verses of Scripture, because these verses of Scripture are going to be part of this story. The first one is from Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And just look up on the screen, and I'll, I'll read this verse. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, how many of you have heard that verse of Scripture before? You recall that verse. It is known as the first promise of the gospel in the Bible. Genesis 3.15. Let me put another passage up on the screen that is from later on, much later on in the Bible. And this is the words of the Apostle Paul from Philippians chapter 3 and verses 7 through 11. Paul said, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. But whatever, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, if you think about it for a moment, we go from that initial promise of the gospel that's found in Genesis 3.15 to talking about Jesus, not as Jesus Christ superstar, but as someone who is at the center of, of all that we are and of all that this world is and of all that we should value in this world. And how do we get from the one to the other and very clearly make known who Jesus is so that there's context and relevance for all of the other claims that we're making about his kingdom. And this is where the gospel story arc presentation comes in. I want to share this with you this morning, and I'll share it with you uh, more or less like I would share it if you were a group of Japanese people and there was someone up here translating into Japanese. And I want you to listen carefully. It may be that for some here this morning, this will be the first time you've heard the story of the kingdom put into this context. But listen carefully because you're going to see why we can go from a verse like Genesis 3.15 to a passage like Philippians 3.7-11 through 11 and realize that there's something special about Jesus and he really does belong at the center of our thinking, the center of our lives, the center of our heart and our faith. All of this, by the way, is available on the Gospel Story Arc website and some of you have seen this little picture cube that we use to tell this story, uh, those are also available. I brought one this morning just to show you, but we're going to walk through the pictures that are on this cube. And if you are interested in, in having a copy of what I'm sharing today, then it's also available on the website. And I just would invite you to check that out. But let's, let me begin. And let me share with you how we would share 
this story of who Jesus is. And so that first picture, go ahead and put that up on the screen, please. The God of the Bible is a great creator and king. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth to be places where his rule is fully honored and obeyed. And God also sent his spirit to the material world so that his spirit would begin operating in the material world. And then God created Adam and Eve, the first human beings. And he blessed them with four types of perfect relationships. A perfect relationship with him, a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relationship with self, so there was no shame, and a perfect relationship with the rest of creation. And after God finished creating, he saw all that he made and he blessed it and he said it was very good. But then a rival spirit, an enemy spirit, entered the world. An enemy spirit named Satan. And Satan used a serpent to tempt Adam and Eve, the first human beings, to rebel against God. Adam and Eve gave in to the temptation and they disobeyed. And as a consequence, the four types of perfect relationships were broken. In fact, if you look up on the screen and you see the picture, the heart that was once whole is now broken into four different sections. And that represents the brokenness that we now experience, the brokenness of a relationship with God, the brokenness of relationships with others, the brokenness of a relationship with self. Now there is shame and a brokenness of relationship with creation. In response, God announced curses on the serpent And he announced curses on the woman that she would have pain and childbearing. He announced curses on the man that he would struggle in his work. He announced curses on the ground that the ground would no longer yield its fruit so easily. The earth was no longer a place that was blessed and very good. Now it's a cursed realm. This is where pain and suffering entered the world. This is where evil entered the world. This is where unbelief entered the world. This is where sin and death entered the world. And yet, there was hope. Because as part of the curse on the serpent, God promised to put hostility between it and the woman. Hostility between the serpent and the woman. And between Someone that God called the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. Now, I got to tell you that the expression offspring of the woman, as we read in Genesis 3.15, it's a very strange expression. Literally, the Bible says the seed of the woman. You've heard that before. The seed of the woman. A very strange expression. Because we all know that seed doesn't belong to women. It belongs to men. And so right away, this is something that would catch the attention of everyone who ever heard this. The seed of the woman. What this tells us is that this person, whoever it may be, this person is not going to be born in the usual way through the agency of a human father. In fact, it suggests that he's going to have someone else be his father, namely God. And because God will be his father, he will have the nature of God 
And because the woman is his mother, he will also have the nature of the woman, the nature of a human being. And because he has the nature of God, he will be a king, just like God is a great king. And, and because of, of his uh, nature, he will also be expected to be someone who is a, a creator. There will be so many more things that we'll learn about him as this story unfolds. And, and now there is God promising that he will raise up this person and there will be this hostility between this person and the serpent. And then God says that the hostility between the serpent and the offspring of the woman will divide humanity into two sides going forward. The side of the serpent and the side of the seed of the woman. Every human being is on one side or the other. I've got news for you. Today, it's still true. You are either on the side, I am either on the side of the seed of the woman, or we're still on the side of the serpent. That may be bad news for some who are not believers in Jesus, or who think of Jesus only as Jesus Christ superstar. But those are the only two choices. And God not only says that there is going to be conflict between the two sides, he promised that someday there's going to be an epic conflict between the two sides, between the serpent and the seed of the woman. And God said that the serpent is going to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. But the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. Now listen, if a serpent bites you in the heel, the likelihood is you're going to experience some pain. You're going to experience some suffering. You may even die. I don't usually include this in my presentation in Japan, but I'll tell you that one of my boys, my fourth born son, was bitten by a garden snake in, in the hand right here. And he um, was a little boy, he picked it up by the tail, thought he would be fun to pick up by the tail, I guess, and the thing just swung around and bit him right here. And he was at my neighbor's home when that happened. My neighbor was, is from Iran. And uh, my son just started kind of dancing in, in pain. And uh, it was just a little garden snake bite. But our neighbor went in and called 911. And <laughs> anyway, that pain and suffering when you're bitten by a snake. But I'll tell you this, when you crush the head of a serpent, what happens? The serpent always dies. And so now we know that in this epic conflict between the serpent and the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman is going to win. He's not only going to be the son of God and the son of man, he's also going to be a conqueror. He's going to be a victor. And by implication, the idea is that he will be a savior. He will somehow rescue people who are on the side of the serpent and bring them over to his side. By the end of this promise, there's really only one question that remains. Who is this person? And from here on, as the story unfolds in the rest of the Old Testament, we 
discover more. God shares much more about the family line of the seed of the woman. Shares much more about his character. It shares that he will be a king for sure. He will be a prophet. He will be someone who speaks for God. He will be a priest. So many more things about him we learn. And by the way, we also figure out very quickly that the serpent is going to do everything he can to deny this person space in this world. Fast forward to the picture you see up on the screen now that is a summary of Jesus' experience here on earth. To the far left, you have a representation of the manger scene representing Jesus' birth. And we believe that Jesus is the seed of the woman that God promised. And that indeed, just like we would expect, he was born of a virgin. And Jesus came into this world and he lived a sinless life. He grew up and he began to perform miracles. He did not perform miracles just to entertain people. He performed miracles to authenticate that he is indeed the person that God promised to send long ago. He's the seed of the woman. And he demonstrated over and over again. He demonstrated that he is a prophet. He's the one that speaks for God. And by the way, anytime someone says they're speaking for God, other than just reflecting the words of God that we already know are part of the word of God, if someone stepped up and said, I have a new message from God, we would expect biblically that to be authenticated in a variety of ways according to what the scriptures teach. Jesus made those kinds of authentications. He made it very clear that he is the son of God. He is the promised seed of the woman. And yet the people rejected him. And they murdered him on the cross. We talk a lot about Jesus dying for us, and rightly so. But I want you to know the Bible also presents Jesus' death on the cross in terms of murder. You read carefully in Acts 2. Peter, in his very first sermon, says, God raised Jesus up and he authenticated who he was. And then God handed him over to you. And then later, he, Peter says, and God raised him up and God exalted him as his right hand. But in the middle of all that, he says, and you murdered him. And you see, Jesus was murdered on the cross. I love, by the way, how the serpent's head comes out of the manger scene. Did you notice that? And bites the heel of Jesus as he's hanging on the cross in that picture, representing the promise that was made back in Genesis 3.15. Because we believe that when Jesus died on the cross, that was the heel bruise that Genesis 3.15 prophesied. Now you might say, well, why in the world would people reject Jesus? Why did they do that? Why would they murder him? And that would take us all the way back to the beginning when pain and suffering and evil and sin and death and unbelief entered the world. These people were on the side of the serpent. And it was the heel bruise. And you might say, well, dying on a cross sounds like a lot more than just a heel bruise. And you're right, but what makes it only a heel bruise is the fact that Jesus didn't stay dead. And I, I love the rest of this picture. In fact, this is the, my favorite picture of all of these. 
in this series. Because to the right you see a representation of the empty tomb with the stone rolled away from the tomb. And do you notice how the stone is rolling over the head of the serpent? Do you see that? I love that, crushing the head of the serpent. Jesus did not stay dead. He rose again on the third day, demonstrating once again in a final sort of way that he is the one that God promised to send. He, in victory, rose over death, crushing, the beginning at least, of the crushing of the head of the serpent. But interestingly enough, that's not the end of the story. There's more to the story because 40 days later, Jesus ascended into heaven. And when he ascended into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Now, when he sat down at the right hand of God the Father, he did not sit down in a chair like I'm sitting in right now. He sat down on a throne. And on his throne, he was exalted as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And if you've ever wondered what the title Lord means as it refers to Jesus, the title Lord is used in a way in the scriptures to represent all that we know about Jesus, including the fact that he was the one that God promised to send long ago, the seed of the woman who would conquer the serpent who would restore people from the side of the serpent to his side, the side of the seed of the woman, through his death, his suffering, his resurrection. He was exalted as Lord at the right hand of God the Father. Now, this is not the end of the story because there's more. The end of the story is that someday Jesus will return He remains seated at the right hand of God the Father for now, interceding for us and serving as our high priest, building his church and calling his people from every nation to become believers in him. But someday Jesus will return. And when he returns, he's going to restore all things. He's going to restore all four types of those relationships perfectly. We who believe in Christ now, we have some semblance of that restoration of our relationship with God and our relationship with others and our relationship with self and our relationship with the rest of creation. But someday that's going to be perfect restoration. Perfect restoration of all things. I can hardly wait. But before Jesus does that, there will be a time of judgment. And at that time of judgment, the Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. In other words, that he is the one that God promised. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what we always say is that we who are believers in Christ are not willing to wait until that day to acknowledge who Jesus is. That in our hearts of hearts, we gladly bend our knee now and confess with our mouth now, Jesus is Lord. Meaning that we believe in our hearts. We believe with all of our hearts 
that Jesus is the one. He's not Jesus Christ superstar. He's not just a way to God. He's the one that God promised. He's at the center of all that God is doing in this world. And we are not willing to wait until that day to bend our knee and confess with our mouth. And the Bible even indicates that for those who do wait and who refuse to bend the knee, who refuse to acknowledge who Jesus is in this life, on that day it will be too late. Even though they will be forced, it will be too late. And there will be judgment. I tell you, we use this story to put into context who Jesus is and the relevance of our saying, you know what? When he died on the cross, he died to pay for your sins. And when he rose again, he rose in victory, not just over sin in general, but over all sin. And you can count on his coming again someday. And you can with confidence out of your heart express faith in him. And you can live your life in a way that honors him day by day and who he is as our king. One of the most interesting things to me about the science of story and its application to the story that the Bible tells us is the fact that we, we see stories regularly divided up into um, elements such as exposition, inciting incident, rising action, climax. You remember this from fifth grade, right? Falling action and then um, resolution and the untying at the end. Here's the thing, dear ones. I want you to know we are living in the age of the falling action of Jesus' story. You see, we're part of that story. You're part of that story. And what you do and how, what I do out of our hearts in response to Jesus is part of his story. That's why we always say it's your story too. And even though we're not in Asia this morning, I don't think there are any Japanese pre people here this morning, this is as much for us, this is as much for anyone in the world as it is for the Japanese people. We're blessed to know who Jesus is and to respond to him as our Lord and King. I just want to challenge you today. I want to challenge you to do a couple of things as we close. I want to challenge you to, first of all, acknowledge in your own heart your faith in Jesus. If you've never done so before, I would invite you sometime today, sometime this week, to physically, actually bend your knee before him. And from your heart, from faith in your heart, acknowledge before him who he is and your faith in him. I also want to challenge you, if you're already a believer in Christ, and I know most of us are for sure, but I also want to challenge you to do something to, this, either today or this week, however the Lord would bring this to your mind. And as you do it, realizing that you're part of this story, part of the falling action of the story, to do something at work, at home, in, in relation to someone else. And as you've done it, Say in your heart, say out loud, get alone and say it out loud, Jesus, 
this is for you. You are my king. I've done this for you. I've, uh, I'm doing this for you. And just remind yourself today that you're part of his story. You're part of what he's doing on this earth. And then as you acknowledge him, go back to a passage like Philippians chapter 3 and verses 7 through 11. And see the normalcy of that type of response to our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we've had just to open your word and look at these verses and rehearse the story of Jesus. Um, Lord, I do pray that you would magnify, amplify the story among Japanese people and Asians in general, but also here in North America. And I pray that we would just, we would see um, the rest of the things that we believe about your kingdom and all those things that we, we love to study and rehearse, how they are part of this larger context of what you're doing through your son, our Lord, Jesus Christ. We thank you for this in his precious name. Amen.